75. I'm joined again by Steve Jones. Steve, welcome back to the show. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, positive response from last week's show and uh, wanted to get you back again. I'm glad you could make it. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, make it on. And um, No problem. Yeah, so it looks like the thing uh, failed to feed into Facebook again. Not sure what's going on there, but uh, hopefully we are feeding to the other sources. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous that uh, it's not feeding to the other places it's supposed to feed to, right? But uh, it is uh, feeding on Twitter and other sources right now, so at least that's a good thing. But uh, so... Uh, I managed to get through about another third of your book. We may have to have you back after the holidays and maybe a few weeks to do a uh, part three on all of this. But uh, lots of good meat in your in your uh, book. Uh, we discussed a little bit last week about Rudolf Steiner and Blavatsky and whatnot. Do you want to start there, or uh, did you have some points that you uh, wanted to kick off first? Uh, I'd like to go back a little farther than that because I think one of the main things about logos or anything is what constitutes evidence. Right. Well, and, yeah, let's do that. Let's start off with the general grammar first. The, the, the thing is, in, in, in the basis to the logos, the philosophy of Paranus in the church, that's actually one of the big problems that they, they both took the same name. The occult calls themselves Philosophia Paranus too. But the main thing was truth is conformity of mind to reality. And what you find is that as you go back, there's two different prongs. I think that these people can use to destroy this is you can go after evidence and, or you can go after thought and both have their own unique histories. Uh, one history, I think you have to go back to the about 1799 where you have the Egyptian hieroglyphics and all these things, were, which were at that point in time taken to be all occult symbols. But Napoleon takes over Egypt and he brings in his researchers, the main one being Jean-Francois Champollion. And the, the big task at the day was deciphering the Rosetta Stone and trying to figure out what that actually meant. The other big researcher at the time was Thomas Young, who... Uh, most people, for some reason, don't know about Thomas Young, but Thomas Young was the guy who actually cleaned up Isaac Newton's research and made it, made it work. Uh, the, what happened is there was an ad hoc decision made right off the bat where what they found in the Rosetta Stones was, was things called cartouches. And these cartouches would draw a symbol around uh, certain hieroglyphs. And it, it took Champollion to realize when the cartouche was around that that was actually spelling words. One was like Cleopatra. The thing was, is that when Champollion went throughout Egypt and specifically the Karnak, he found a word Shawshank as the founder of the 22nd dynasty. And he made an ad hoc decision, assuming that it was Shishak of first Kings in the Bible. And so what happened is that in its own way, that sort of gave credibility to a complete redating of the Old Testament. And because they literally said, well, the Egyptian hieroglyphs 
were sealed in stone and the, the Jewish writings were basically on, on papyrus, that the, the, the Egyptians took precedence over that. The problem that you get is that once you make this distinction that Shishak and Shashank are the same person, what you do is you, you delegitimize the entire Old Testament because at that point, nothing in the Old Testament lines up with any history. So one of the things, I, the reason I wanted to bring this up because I know you mentioned something last week about the redating of things. Uh, there's an archeologist named David Roll who was actually quite popular in England for a while. He's actually an Egypt, Egyptologist who actually lived in Egypt and before all these tombs and things were tourist traps and he knew them quite uh, hands-on. And he realized that there was significant discrepancies in the way these things were dated. And what he realized is that perhaps 600 to 1,000 years of history was lost or considered to be illegitimate. What they did is they ended up, instead of overlapping dynasties, which he figured was the accurate way of adjusting Egyptian history, they put them toe to heel, adding about 600 to 1,000 years that he reckoned never really existed. But what happens as you go in, this is just enough to shake people into believing things like the Exodus had never happened or all the figures of uh, Jewish history were, were basically fictitious people made up by the Jews. So when you start getting into the 20th century, you've got this, this kind of a juggernaut rolling in where Christian academia are not quite sure how real to take the Old Testament or not. And I think it's on that plateau that you start dumping things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you start dumping all these Gnostic ideas because you're what they're trying to do is salvage a history in kind of a bad way. Instead of actually going back and doing this research, they're trying to dump it on these kind of half-baked ideas. Interesting. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we can see this, you know, this underlying attempt, this underlying, let's call it what it is, conspiracy to undermine the veracity of Christianity as well and, and remove it from logos so that it becomes this gnostic or zoroastrian sort of cult rather than a religion based on uh truth as god right what happens is you start legit getting back to blavatsky and this is where they fold into the whole thing right is, is what you do is you start legitimizing the corpus hermeticum which was basically lost to Christianity until about 1435, 1434, which is the beginning of the Renaissance. Uh, the Catholic Church decides that they're going to have a council to try to knit back together the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Uh, but what, a, a, as I said last week, a guy named Plethon comes onto the scene and he re-indoctrinates Christianity with the Corpus Hermeticum, which becomes the, the basic cult text for everybody from Madame Blavatsky to Aleister Crowley. And it's, the, oddly enough, um, even in the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, uh, some of these people that they're quoting, uh, that they're being inspired by this and they don't really, they're not aware what they're plugging into at all. Uh, 
I can't think of her name right now. Um, no, pe people of the golden dawn are being readily accepted into the church unscrupulously and claiming to be Christians and claim, but basically bringing into this doctrine. And mind you, it's a doctrine that St. Augustine specifically condemned. Well, and then they go back through and they basically undo a thousand years of Christian history and doctrine and what was well known and established, and then just start undoing it uh, willy-nilly, essentially. Yeah, well, they never they never really step in, and like I, it, that's really where my book kind of steps in in this discussion, is that you know, as you were, we were talking before we went on the cameras, checking sources and checking to see who there was a lot of dissension when the Dead Sea Scrolls came on the scene, which is what my book tries to expose. That there were, a, a, in fact, the highest ranked scholars of the time doubted their authenticity. But what you've got to see, I think, is that a lot of these, a lot of these theologians in the 40s were all in on this way of thinking, and they needed some way to rationalize the direction that they're about to take the church. Uh their, their spidey sense wasn't up, though. They didn't know anything. <laughs> well, and it, and it should have been up, you know, when you think about it, because they should have been aware that any and all attempts to rewrite and revamp things would have been out there. They should have looked more critically at the evidence, but instead the Vatican folded. And now you've got the latest pope out, you know, kissing the well, feet I, of Mohammedans. Right. Well, you get in the 60s and 70s. The, the seminarians at that time, the seminaries were all on this idea of re, reincorpor, reincorporating Plato back in and overturning Aristotle as the basis for for wisdom. Right. If what the thing is, part of the Philosophia Perennis was not just logos. Part of it, there, there was a major section of it was teaching you how to think clearly, how reason works, how logic works, and how to know when you're, you know. Be getting minds familiar with logical fallacies so they know they're not off the deep end. But the other half of it really, and I can send you this, I'm, I'm just about ready to compile it. And once I give it to you, I might encourage you to give it away freely to whoever. Uh, the other part of it is to know when you were being duped. Right. And a lot of this was basically to train your mind to know, in fact, they would one of the courses they would have in, in Philosophia Apprentice was epistemology. If you're taken in a college course, they'll tell you, well, this is the, the, it's the study of how we know. But if you take it in Philosophia Apprentice, they'll specifically tell you it's the study of false doctrine. Now, by the time well, you get right. to Well, and, and when you look at Aristotelian logic, that is the foundation of understanding reality. So, what these people want to do is promote an idea that everything is primacy of consciousness. We're not, well, reality isn't real. We're not of the world. The world is a reflection of us. So then it makes it, it makes everything, you know, especially to like the New Agers, it's the most egoic thing that's possible because then to the New Ager, their God, you don't have the right to exist as you, Steve. People don't have the right to their own agency to behave as they want to. It's their, their, anything that they do is because you, Steve, put out negative energy and therefore you brought it back on yourself rather than everything being 
rather than reality being real, being a creation of logos, uh, God cannot lie, from, like Titus 1-2, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, but that establishes that reality is real first. And then, you know, everything is predicated upon that first and primary premise that reality is real. And then once you understand that reality is real, then suddenly the primacy of consciousness and uh, who was it, Hegel and these guys, their stuff becomes nonsense because, uh, or, or was it Hume, excuse me. But, it, you know, because what you realize is that this is an undermining of the understanding that reality is real so that we can't know what truth is. And then, as I exposed with David Harriman, which was one of the first shows you heard of mine years ago, exposing quantum physics, then we have all of this quantum physics stuff coming in that's all compiled on top of the assumption that reality isn't real, whereas the Bible and Christianity and Logos and and Aristotelian logic all brings you back to the first premise that reality is real. Well, and that's the main thing. You had you started with the base. The basis was the, was a definition of truth, and truth was conformity of mind to reality. Once you dismiss reality, it's just conformity to yourself. The whole idea of knowing truth was to know God. Right. Uh, if, if, oh, reality, exactly. Now, you all. It was always taken as grant for granted. You knew yourself. Right. Well, uh, and that's exactly it. You know, is, studying, looking for truth is to know God, and that's when you have that epiphany moment that aha that's right. when you understand something as truth as god but i on as a contrast you would get in in the philosophia premise or logos as you would say you would you would get a basic understanding of how logic works how grammar works how you have subject and predicate you have the copulative is in between which is by no accident that's what moses refers to God as the one whose essence is to exist. But by the time you get to the 20th century, especially the 1960s, you're no longer learning the Aristotelian syllogism. Now you're learning the hypothetical syllogism from Hegel. You take a logic course in college in this, you know, beginning in the 60s, instead of man, if man is mortal, Socrates is a man, that type of thing, it's always if man was mortal, if Socrates is a man. So you never can draw any conclusive, you know, conclusions from that. So, at a very ripe age, you're you're teaching kids not to trust truth. Exactly, and that truth doesn't exist, and therefore, if truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, and then therefore, the Bible and Christianity is invalidated. Right, and then you start getting into the logical fallacies, and you did. Once you go down that, there's no way you can climb your way back out. And once you get that logos is truth itself, that God is truth itself, you can begin to see through the the sea of lies and and distortions and disinformation that's been put in there to lead us away from this, you know. And it's like this is why they say the devil is in the details. It's not for you to that's not put there for you so that you don't go and look. Oh, if you look, the devil's there, you know, you're gonna find Satanism. No, it's so you know when you go and look. For the truth, you can see where Satan has planted these lies, being the father of all lies. Well, you you, you get the you get the inkling from people that they, they want to see this as some evil conspiracy, but the, the fact of the matter is the foundation is very solid. The so, the foundation was the five principles that they would teach was basically the first one was non contradiction. 
Right. Uh, the principle of non The second one that's, would be well. That's logic. The art of non-contradictory identification. Right. And then you. The second one would be the principle of identity, which is everything is that it is. And it's not what it's not, which is kind of goes along with the first principle. The second one is the or the third one is the principle of the excluded excluded middle, and that is between two contradictories. There's nothing in between. It's it, you don't have a middle ground between yes and no. Right. Well, and then this is where they sell moral relativism and whatnot, the middle of the road fallacy. And, you know, it's right. and then you have two more, which is the principle of reason of necessary reason and necessary causality that uh, everything that exists has to have sufficient reason to exist and reason have to have sufficient reason. It all. I mean, once you see it, it's a it's a it's a very solid foundation for analyzing anything. And what they would do is they would take those principles, teach them solidly, but they would build it up into epistemology and reason and logic and philosophy. It was a wonderful edifice. Uh, and that was the basis of school. That was a basis of, from grammar school on up. But by the time you get to the 1960s, they're basically abandoning it all. And that's the question. What, what gave them the right or the privilege or the thinking that this was something that was, you know, could be abandoned? Right. Uh, you know, and I was just going to mention this, and Teddy in the chat says that transgenderism is a signature of the devil, you know, and what that is, is, you know, the Bible opens up with, you know, God created male and female. So this transgender and the whole LGBT QWERTY movement, where now it's just the whole keyboard, is to distort what is primary. There's boys and there's girls, male and female, and these together can create life in the uh, image of God. And so, right. you know, what you have is a total distortion of this so that people uh, aren't even able to identify what boys and girls are. And now you've got this idiot organization, the uh, ACLU, going out saying, you know, men who have uh, periods and babies are really men, right? Not women who have periods and babies pretending to be men. You know, and people are so stupid now that they think if you put on a dress and a wig, that makes you a woman. You know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to pretend that you were someone else, you put on underoos and you ran around the backyard and, you know, and you pretended that you were Superman or Spider-Man or whatever, but nobody participated in your delusion. And now they're actually passing laws to force everybody to participate in this delusion. And I would go actually even deeper than that. One, when I first learned about and started taking the courses, which they don't teach anymore, uh, I actually was a bit skeptical at first. And I thought, well, this is all interesting. This is all very logical. But, but what's it got to do with the Bible? And what I was determined to do after I finished the courses was this, where in the Bible would you find that Aristotle or something Aristotelian is significant in all this? Uh, and it you look at Genesis, Genesis is constantly embroiled in these arguments of whether it's real or it's mythology. One of the fundamental things, and I believe it's at the end of my book, near the end, uh, is that they had a teaching diagram so that you could carry it with you and know what the basis of reason was. And it was called the tree of porphyry. And the tree of porphyry starts off with material and immaterial, and it, it goes into life and living. And you you end up with a, a logical tree that breaks down that ends up with man, the rational animal. If you look at 
Genesis, in this, this story of creation, what you will find is almost a precise exact mapping of the tree of porphyry. And both are called tree of knowledges. Right. And it's astounding that at the very beginning of the Bible is something as profound as that. And people generally have missed that. And so it, and it, the, the, the very first thing that is being taught is the idea that there's man and woman, that there's living and non-living. You can take the very, the very basic five principles of Philosophia Perennis and apply it directly to the tree of Porphyry. And then, in my opinion, the tree of life is the family tree, but that's probably another discussion. Right, right, right. They're two different trees. Right. And so, you know, once you get that, you know, with the tree of life, what their goal is with eugenics and with all of this disinformation and the promotion of homosexuality and transgender and all of this is it's eugenics and it's to get the bad branches of the tree cut and thrown into the fire. And so they promote as much iniquity as possible to get people caught into you know, that behavior so that their family tree dies off or their tree of life. Right. Well, but don't you think to some degree, uh, I mean, this is a clever tactic in itself is that, you know, the bank robber always brings the driver along to, to, to basically pervert the driver so that now his reputation is tainted. So he has to go along. If, if a group of people can get something on you or get you to do something you're embarrassed of or ashamed of, they're, you're going to be less likely to go to some authority and say, you know, something's wrong here. So I think a, a general trend of all these things is to get people uh, to abide into a little uh, hanky-panky so that, that you, you become better prey for the scheme. Yeah, well said. And then they're constantly finding new lows for the scheme that uh, they sell to the low IQ masses as freedom and liberty and whatnot, you know. And so now you have this whole uh, left-hand path believing that, you know, butt sex and dressing up, uh, you know, cross-dressing and doing drugs is what freedom is all about. And so uh, what I wanted to ask you, why don't we touch on Ian Fleming and James Bond for a minute? How does that tie into all of this? <laughs> Well, I mean, you you do have, that's that's taking it wide. You do have you do have Kim Philby, and you do have all you know the Cambridge Five. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, and maybe you don't know about this. Um, do you know much about the Cambridge Five? I I may not. Uh, I can tell you lots about other groups like the X Club and whatnot, but I don't. Maybe I I don't know. I'll have to look it up and see if I mapped them out before. Well, they're all spies. Most of them are spies. One was uh, <laughs> that's that's nothing new. <laughs> and one's was Kane, the Keynes was one of them who invented Keynesian economics. Uh, but they they, they I, I'm excuse me if I get some of the details wrong here. But I'm because I'm trying to pull this back from way back. But they started out as a as a club. Uh, I, I believe they called themselves the Apostles. And what they did is they, it was a very selective club because it was a, a blue blood club in, in, in Cambridge. But the, what happened was this, they made a club within a club and what they decided to do is they invented political gayness. And the idea was that that was a way you could hold the other people uh, at bay because you could always wrap them out and destroy their careers. But Kim Philby 
uh, I can't remember the names of all of them, but they, some of these had worked their way all up into the royalty. Uh, he was surveyor of the, one of them, um, I can't think of his name, was surveyor of the royal art and was a, 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 a Nazi, basically. Uh, there's a book written by, I can't think of his name either, but it's called Spycatcher, telling about how they actually went and went after the Cambridge Five and exposed them for being, have Nazi connections during World War II. In my book, what I try to show is that at the time Israel was trying to become a nation, it was this same, some of these same Kim Philby and things where we're, we're pushing armaments into Palestine uh, and aiding people. And so there was always these du duplicitous things going on. Uh, Ian Fleming, James Bond, it, I mean, there's a, there's a notion of reality to all this stuff that's, yeah, they were exploiting it and yeah, they were making James Bond films. All, but Kim Philby and Ian Fleming were very much part of the intelligence community. Let's touch on this uh, inversion of the Romans persecuting the Jews rather than protecting the Jews. Um, well, as we talked about before the show began, there's a lot of there's a lot of discrepancies as to who and you, you politics is playing into this. It really, for me, this, this one of the deciding points here was Masada, in that the people that went in to try to claim Palestine really created a George Washington type episode around Masada. Uh, what the, what happened is they they took the legend as recorded by Josephus, and what really amounted to were being terrorists early on, and we pointed out maybe there was a early Islamic connections or something because that's well, really and, yeah and this Sikari group it looks it sounds remarkably similar to uh, Hassani Sabah's group right so and now they, I, the well, Hashishans are assassins you know right and so now now you you get a situation where I totally understand you're trying to create a nation you've been persecuted throughout World War II and different things like that and you want to create this George Washington cross the valley you know Valley Forge type legend but they basically what they did is they buried this whole idea that it was really the Roman Empire that went after these assassins, cleaned them up for the sake of the Jews, really. So you get into the 20th century, and now the bad guys become the good guys, and the good guys become the bad guys. Right. A constant this, inversion. Yeah. But what this plays off against is a really terrible legend. Uh, and what you really find out through history is you're sort of playing two bad legends off against each other. One is the Spanish Inquisition, which was exploited into being something more than it ever really was, but also is this Jewish blood libel thing that they were wantingly going out and killing Christians during Good Friday and that type of feast. And, so, and I, I do believe some of this happened, but I don't believe anywhere near to the, to the extent that they were exploited to make, you know, politically, to, to pit Roman Empire against the Christian against the Jews and the Jews against the Christians. Uh, it was all exaggerated past, but if you, the bad part about it is I don't think you really truly understand what was going on in early Christianity, unless you can take apart and look at Esther and these different things that are going on kind of objectively. And, and, and you look forward. at uh, ex, uh, Esther and uh, uh, Haman as a sort of uh, proto 
sacrifice of Jesus in your book. Yeah, well, it can go two ways. One, if you believe Esther is an ancient text, then it's a proto-sacrifice. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that Esther was probably written fairly late, which means now you have to understand if Josephus is writing a book of Esther, and I counted upwards of at least nine similarities in Esther to the book of John, either he's copying the book of John or John somehow is getting it. The, one of the big questions is how during the crucifixion are, is, is information getting out to the general public about what happened inside these closed doors. Um, and so one of the things that was speculated early on was Josephus was privy to all this, maybe even part of the, the, uh, the Pharisees at that time witnessing this stuff. So the thing was, was Josephus really, who was considered a very reliable historic, early historian, was he really perhaps trying to telegraph what was really going on by using the book of Esther to the rest of Christianity? What you have to realize, even though we make a big deal about uh, Jew against Christian and stuff in these early times, Christianity was pretty much ex widely accepted within the realm of Judaism up until the Bar Kokhba revolt, where that was really where the animosity started because the, the Christians found protection under the Roman Empire and the Jews were, kind, were working against them. And the, the, they basically wanted the Christians to fight against the Romans and the Christians just said, no, we're not. And that's kind of where it started. Now, I had found uh, evidence that the Puritans, are, their name actually stems from uh, the Purim as well. But that's a whole other that discussion. Could, I mean, that could be. The, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's wrong. What I, what I do know is a lot of... Well, the, just to interject there, the early Puritans thought that they were uh, living in the tradition of... Uh, you know, the book of Esther and this fight against uh, Haman. Yeah. And, and this is stated in a lot of the early uh, puritanical texts. I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount, though, the connection to the Cathars also, though. Uh, there, there is some evidence that the secret, the secret book of John was a Gnostic Cathar text going back to the early millennium. Um, what happens is that book, you, you have the same thing in the Cathars where you have the pure ones who are basically the, the organizers and runners of the religion. And then you have the servants, the average people who take care of, of these pure ones. Uh, when, when the Cathars are, are decimated basically during the Albigensian crusade, they kind of resurface in uh, Calvinist Northern England some of the texts do, there's some evidence that the text did migrate there that even uh, some of the literary materials in, in England about that time were actually taken from Cathar texts, which would have inspired the Puritans. Interesting. You want to hold up your book again, just so uh, people know, sure. and, and people can find the hard copy on Lulu. Uh, some right. people wrote me this week wondering where they could find it. So The Death of Tradition by Steve Jones, you can find that on Lulu. You can also get the uh, ebook version on Amazon, et cetera, right? Right. right. I prefer hard copies personally. Now, I've, got, I've taken a couple of quotes out of your book here. I wanted to uh, 
read here. Let's see. The fight caused by the book was addressed at West Westminster Abbey by the Bishop of London. Quote, a remarkable work of fiction. You feel the darkness creeping around the world. You see crime and violence increase in every part of the world. Then you see how darkness settles down upon the human spirit regarding the Christian record as a fable. Then you quit with something like adequate thanksgiving and uh, and thank God it is light because of the awful darkness when it is dark. And so you can see how, you know, this this uh, Bishop of London was discussing how, and we've discussed this elsewhere, as, as people fall away from Christianity and don't grasp Logos and think it's a mythology about a guy floating in, you know, on a throne in space and, and all this nonsense, we can see the darkness settle around us as the fall, you know, literally well, The reason I us. put that quote in there is that, that that was referring to the 1903 book, When It Was Dark, uh, who is basically taking the theology of Ernest Renal and using it as a like we said, it's a war of the worlds. It, it, it took the world, it, it frightened the hell out of the world at the time. Uh, but this is 1903, this is 1904. This is way before anybody had discovered dis Dead Sea Scrolls, had discovered 60s things. That's why, it, that's why I say a lot of these things had roots going all the way back. The basic concept of what was going to happen to the world was already well installed in 19, early 1900s. It, it's it, it may it, it also makes you spec skeptical of what happened is how did the how did the Dead Sea Scrolls thing if you look at the book when it was dark it's eerily similar to what what went on in my book as I portray it and I then I wrote the book when I wrote my book I really didn't even know about the book when it was dark until later I had to go rewrite the book and put it back in there and as I was putting those quotes in there I was scaring myself. I can I can see that you know it'd be like fast forwarding today from to today from 1903 and seeing all of the gay marriage and transgender and soy boys everywhere and masculinity is considered bad and you know the opposite of logos and truth is promoted as the higher authority and what I mean that was they were taking their theology and philosophy from Ernest Renan you take a course in the Dead Sea Scrolls they're going to tell you straight out that most of the theology that the early scroll scholars were researching came directly from Ernest Renan. It's the, you, you got the same guy inspiring the Nazis as inspiring the, the Gnostic occultists of the, of the latter 20th century. And you state, Isaac's theory is suspiciously uh, Renan-like, Renan yet most suspicious is the full text of the section we have just referred to, translated from the French uh, from the section entitled Similarities to the Essenes, Affinities in the French, and then you quote it here. Of all of the Jewish sects of this time, the best known, though mysterious in many respects, is Essenism, pure among the pure, still exceeding the Pharisees in devotion and in strict adherence to legalism. The Essenes formed a veritable religious congregation where a gradual initiation into secret doctrines was only allowed after a long uh, no, <laughs> novitiate <laughs> dressed in white linen. They led an 
ascetic and monastic life far from the world on the shores of the Dead Sea, subject to severe rules, chastity, purity, sobriety, silence, and work. And you, you see an emergence here of a, of a thing. No occultist of the 1800s or early 1900s would have mistaken that for an orthodox Christian thing. They right. would have heard- and they were a, a murderous terrorism group, too. Right, right. Now, you, you, the connections, as you, we've been saying before, the connections start wheeling your imagination in circles. And uh, the last name is R-E-N-A-N. Go, that goes yes. out to Beating Tracks Out of Babylon, R-E-N-A-N. And then uh, here's another one. Clearly, the church's metaphysics had changed. Very suddenly, peace went from being an ataraxia, a condition of tranquility and serenity achieved from achieved when one ponders truth, to becoming a social state where everyone just got cozy with each other. <laughs> The reason I meant that a little snidely. <laughs> right, I mean, clearly. The reason this all made other theologies obsolete was that they simply weren't needed. The world's soul solves it all. Peace is not embracing truth. It is everyone thinking the same thought regardless of truths. You know, this is uh this is uh truth or you know, rule by consensus rather than by actual fact and truth and understanding that reality is real. It is like the Marxist principle, peace is the noble condition of humankind, not to be disrupted by anything. Everything must be in service of that peace, even truth. It was this that the Dead Sea Scrolls would vindicate as a way of establishing world peace. It would do this by delegitimizing the perennial philosophy and reestablishing Persian mysticism as the basis of Christianity. So That's absolutely true. And so they completely undermined everything through Persian Gnosticism, like Todd and I discussed in our shows. Uh, they did this to Christianity, just like, you know, like it was done within uh, Islam. And they invert, they create this, this Fox version of of Christianity and sell that as the real one. And and then, you know, it comes down to, again, this, this primacy of consciousness crap, whereas, you know, everything is the one mind. And, and, you know, Steve, you don't have the right to exist. You don't have agency to do things on your own. I don't either. We're just, you know, the figment of some hippie's imagination, right? Or some new age's uh, imagination. Uh, yeah. And, and the thing is, and I, my editor went through this with me too, because I had, I had relegated to a little bit smaller point towards the end of the book of, of what he considered a very shocking ending, which I won't give you right now, but it's basically when he read the book, he said, you know, this, you got to direct this more at the millennials. <laughs> and it, it's the whole idea is that we don't realize the path we're, we're creating here and where this all leads. Uh, oh, and it, you know, and it's, uh, once you can step back through Logos, you can see where it leads. And once you get that they were functioning from a place of Logos, then you can begin to see how they were able to map out all of the things that would transpire to the fall. You know, the, the Bible is, it you know, is it predictive or are they following a roadmap type of thing? But when you come from it as from a place of Logos, you can see how they could see through 
people lying and manipulating and overturning all of this stuff, what would be the end conclusion? One of the one of the big problems I think that we miss that we don't read when we read the Bible these days, and I dare say not many scholars realize this, is that we've kind of lost connection with an Euripides play, the Bacchae. And the Bacchae, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the Bacchae basically is a story of Dionysius as a god. Uh, the, the king goes back and is, who's just a young, young man, realizes he's losing control of his kingdom. And his mother is going up in the mountains with all her cohorts, drinking wine, having, having uh, female and female sex and things like that. So what happens is the the king dresses up in drag and goes up in the mountains to watch what's going on and figure out how he can save the kingdom. And when he gets there, it, he gets embroiled in this whole thing and actually ultimately gets eaten by his own mother. What happens when John writes the Gospel of John, the, these images are very much aware to the readers because the play was very much was very important in the first century. So when he writes the when he writes John, He's making allusions to the Bacchae all over the place because he's seeing the, the, the imagery of the king being eaten by his own is very much embroiled in, in the idea of the crucifixion, where you have the Pharisee, basically Pharisee, eating one of their own, in a sense, by crucifying Jesus. The, this is known because even the early liturgies, the Good Friday liturgies, are based on this Bacchae thing. But the essence of the Bacchae, and it's referred to in the Psalms too, is the idea of reason have, being the rider of the horse and the horse being the emotions, where even going back to the Genesis at the beginning, the illusion was Adam represented reason and Eve represented the passions. That it's Not that there was anything wrong with passions, but it was passions always- Passions and emotion. Right. It was the passions were to be ridden as a rider would ride a horse and direct them and say, you don't go here, you go here. And, and so when we read John, we don't realize that that whole thing. And then you can get the same story in, in fourth Maccabees, which is eliminated from most Bibles. But fourth Maccabees is basically the, the, the real title of fourth Maccabees is Maccabees is the sovereignty of reason over the emotions. All right, so uh, let's see here. You want to talk for a minute about uh, the idea that the scrolls were stolen from a Palestinian synagogue? Yeah, it, it's. I don't really ascribe necessarily to any one of these things, but what I'm trying to show is there's there's a lot of dubious connections here that I, I think what I, I'm I'm trying to contest here this. <clears throat> you don't have enough information to make the claims that they're making. The, the, some of the scholars were saying these were stolen from a, a synagogue. Others were saying that there was this oddball connection. The script, the paper, everything was very similar to papers that were just had been discovered in Egypt called the Geniza, uh, which really is what Jews did at that time is once a, once a, once a scroll was used up, they buried it. Uh, it was considered a sacred entity, and so a Geniza is basically a burial vault for, for used script. Uh, what they found, and the name of it was Geniza. So when, when uh, in earlier part of the century, they found the Egyptian Geniza, 
uh, which had loads and loads and loads and loads of manuscripts. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the, the Solomon Zeitlin, who is the, the, the most uh, respected researcher, Jewish researcher, the Second Commonwealth at the time, said, there's something suspicious about these Dead Sea Scrolls. They're very much like what the scrolls that had been known to exist from the Ganaisa, but they could not figure out where any of these scrolls, who would have had the connection. Well, it turns out one of the people connected with Isaac actually owned the scrolls. So it, it's not without any, the, the Geniza scrolls did have a connection to the Dead Sea Scrolls, making it again, a suspicious, you know, why would you assume that these things weren't tainted? And uh, let's go into the connection between Essenism and socialism. Well, one of the, socialism is basically founded on the idea of Marxism. Marxism is really, and you learn this in grade, at least we used to learn it in grade school, that Marxism is based on Hegelianism. Hegelianism is the idea that you can have contradictory truths. Um, that Moral the relativism, whole, the, you it, know, the, the idea that a contradiction is not always a lie or an error. The it's exact, not a killer. The, the, not, the exact opposite of the trivium in critical thinking and logic. Right, right, right. So, I mean, out of once you get Marxism, you get socialism. So the very foundation of socialism is the idea that contradictories can both be true. Well, now you've you basically destroyed the whole idea of, of non-contradiction, of identity, of the excluded middle. Uh, if that's true, then then the, the fundamental points of of logos are gone, and, and I think they know that. That's why they push it. Uh, interestingly enough, though, Hegel was Marxism wasn't the only thing founded on Hegel. Uh, if you look up even in Wikipedia, if you look up modernism, which Pius X condemned at the beginning of the millennium, uh, the last millennium. You'll, you'll find that it was F.C. Bauer. What, what Pius X was condemning was modernism. Modernism was founded by F.C. Bauer, a German theologian, who was also inspired by Hegel. And it was Hegel, Hegel's philosophy that Bauer used to redate the Testaments. It, it, was, it was Hegel's dating system that, or I shouldn't say dating system, but system of analyzing history that Bauer used to redate the Gospel of John, it was it was Bauer that placed the Gospel, the writing of Gospel of John, into the, well towards the end of the second century. It's still listed that way by a lot of people, even though it Papyrus fifty two has been found, which dates with which dates John to the beginning to, or the end of the first century. Now the beginning of the second century. So I mean Bauer's. Bauer's philosophy has been completely discredited, yet you open a lot of Bibles even to this day, they'll date the Gospel of John as being what the idea was, was making the Gospel of John appear as if it was a Gnostic text, which it never was. And then uh, Beating Tracks Out of Babylon says, which was all, uh, Gnosticism, a duality, which we were just discussing a couple minutes ago, and then he says, uh, tell the people about the German school of philosophy, how it's totally key. Are you able well, to go into that? Maybe you'd be better at that. <laughs> well, I would suggest people go back into my shows back from 2011 with uh, David Harriman, 
who used to teach at the uh, university about 20 minutes from here. But uh, uh, we did a series exposing quantum physics and all of that, and I would highly recommend going through that whole series, plus his uh, breakdown of quantum physics, which is about an eight or 10 hour uh, lecture series that he did. And, and that'll give people an understanding of how they created a false foundation to build all of this hyperbole from. Um, the go the ahead. thing, the thing is that I would add to that, not so much as I don't, you know, I'm not that familiar with that, but one of the things I find is that we like to attribute different philosophies. We, it's hard to think currently, contemporarily, in the way somebody would have thought a long time ago. And you always have to be careful. <laughs> he he says to... you were saying it with Hegel and Bauer, and that's the key part. But, you know, we're going right. into the German school of philosophy right there. And somebody else is asking, quantum physics is a fraud. And when you get that that's all selling the whole primacy of consciousness thing, that you can't know truth, you can't know uh, anything for certain, because it could be, you know, there's 11 or whatever different realities. So it could be all of this stuff based on, you know, false mathematics and whatnot. So then you understand. Well, if, I, if you want to look down that path, I mean, the, one of the best series that you can look up, look it up on YouTube. There's a series called, uh, the universe, the cosmological quest. It's interviewing some of the top physicists in the world. Uh, Jeffrey Burbage and his wife were given um, Nobel. Uh, they weren't given Nobel Prize. They, I think his wife was actually given a, a an award from Reagan. Um, there's Alton Harp, Arp, I think Halton Arp, I think his name is. Uh, plenty of evidence that that quantum physics is suspicious by notable people. Uh, <laughs> And and as Fred Hoyle is another one. And that was probably the first show you had ever seen of mine was when or heard of mine was way back, you know, eight years ago when I interviewed Harriman and and we did that that series together. And that caused a big old uh, ruckus. You know, there's some guy had uh, written a thing about, you know, this this open letter to me online because I doubted the veracity of quantum physics and this this whole uh uh, well, have you foundation ever heard of, of German philosophy and whatnot. Have you ever heard of the Zagnac device? Zagnac device? Yes. I don't think so. All right. A Zagnac device is, I can't, it was made, invented by a Czech physicist. I think, I think he was Czech, but it, it basically, what they needed was a gyroscope for jet fighters. They needed something in, in space launches and something that would react at, at supersonic speeds. So they developed a, a gyroscope based on this on light beams. It's literally in every fighter aircraft in the whole world. The whole idea of Einstein is based on the idea that the speed of light has is a constant. The Zagnac device works on the idea that the speed of light is not a constant. It wouldn't work. And it's in every jet fighter in the entire world. Good grief. And where, where did I hear that somewhere over recently, over the weekend, I even heard that there was so much problems with this. I, I just watched a video series where they, they actually took the speed of light and now instead of, so that, so that they can insist that it's a constant, they measure it, me, the measurements is now taken as if the speed of light is a constant, but we'll take the measurements 
that it travels as fluctuating with the speed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you end up with a tautology that it's right. whatever you want it to be. So sophistry at its finest. Yeah, right. it's always interesting. You know, and that's the issue with these guys that don't, you know, these uh, physicists that don't have a foundation first in in logic and in the trivium for that matter, and then the quadrivium, because then they, they start thinking that, you know, the map is the territory, and then they come up with these ridiculous theories. Well, my, my whole thing actually started, as I explained to you, I, I ended up having a book from Galileo, Galileo's trial judge, and I took it to Marquette University, and they said, I've got one of three in private hands, but I started researching Galileo. The, the main thing that Galileo upsets the this, what was supposedly this, the commute, scientific community was the idea that the earth didn't move. So you get in the latter half of the 19th century, you have a physicist by the name of George Biddle Airy, who actually has decided that he's going to once and for all prove that the earth moves. So he comes up with this fairly simple uh, experiment where he's going to shoot light waves down a, a telescope barrel. And the, the problem is he gets no result. He cannot prove the earth is moving. He can't prove it's not moving. <laughs> so he, he, he gets that inspires Mickelson and Morley who, who make a platform and decide we're going to prove that the earth moves. They, the, the thing is they keep building the platform bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to find this out. They're always getting non-conclusive results. The scientific community will tell you that the results prove this or prove that, but the results have never ever been able to prove one thing one way or the other. So now you can look this up, the, the, the most, it, probably the highest ranking physicist in the world right now uh, is Sir George Ellis. And he specifically has said, there's the videos on YouTube that we cannot envision a platform big enough ever because it would have to be at least as big as the solar system to test the theory. Well, what good is that? <laughs> well, you start realizing that most of these theories were coming out of the uh, Royal Society. And every time I see anything come from the Royal Society anymore, it's automatically suspicious. They're and assuming they're, more than they can prove. Well, there's so much just, you know, 400 years of crap coming out of the Royal Society. And uh, you get guys like Dawkins and these other people, you know, and, and you know, I did a, a show on this about a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago, of all of the nonsense coming out of the Royal Society, all these fake uh, uh, theories. But all Have you of ever heard the backstory of Darwin? No. You know of Wallace? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Darwin was kind of a sickly guy. Right. And he wanted to travel the world and prove all this stuff, and his health was getting the best of him. So it was Wallace who was actually doing all this research, and Darwin was his, his contact back in England where he would send all his research. Wallace had proved conclusively in his mind that while he believed evolution existed, he, he came up with a thing called the Sarawak Law. And the Sarawak Law basically was the foundation of the theory of evolution, but it specifically said that Wallace could find no conclusive proof whatever that the human mind was ever could was a product of evolution or could ever possibly be considered a product of evolution. He was on his way back to the British Royal Society to, to prove his results, that while he felt that evolution biologically had happened, he felt it was never ever going to be proved that the mind proved, 
could have evolved out of apes or anything else. By the time he set way, he had sent all his research back to Darwin. Darwin took the information to the Royal Academy, proved evolution, and hijacked all of Wallace's research. Right. And initially, they were going to give Wallace an award, too. I don't remember the details of it off the top of my head, but uh, here it comes. And for those who like to play the drinking game, so... uh, Thomas Henry Huxley was Darwin's propaganda manager, and what what uh, Thomas Henry Huxley did was he created a group called the X Club, and here he is here, and through the X Club, they placed eight, uh, let me see if I can find it here, they placed eight uh, scientists in, in key universities to promote uh, Darwin's so-called research. And then interestingly, here we go again, Julian Huxley, who was Thomas Huxley's uh, grandson, uh, created the new synthesis and wrote the introduction to Pierre Teilhard Chardin's uh, book on all this, whom you also expose in your book. But, you know, the Huxley family is basically who PR'd all of this stuff along with the Royal Society. And then they use all of this stuff to promote their eugenics and their mind control. Of course, uh, Julian Huxley's brother, Aldous Huxley, headed the CIA's uh, MKUltra program. But uh, Julian Huxley and, you know, these people were signed on to the uh, eugenics manifesto. And then it goes on, you know, on from there. But uh, this is all tied around the Huxley family who did all of the propaganda for the uh, for Darwin and, you know, created this whole X club and whatnot to promote this nonsense. My reason for writing the book was, you know, I've been taught by, you know, lawyers and different things that you don't go after the whole case, go after the thing you know you can win. And I, I don't disagree with any of that. But my the reason I wrote the book is because I think I can win this argument. Right. Well, I'm just laying out some of the background with these people and, yeah. and how oh, how they created uh, propaganda structures and organizations to, you know, you know, it's like the X Club and, and Thomas Henry Huxley placing these key academics and key schools was so that they could take, con- excuse me, so that they could take uh, control of the academic narrative. And by placing people in like Harvard and Oxford and Yale and whatnot, then, you know, Cambridge or whatever, then, you know, people would look at this and say, oh, well, these are what the, the, you know, Ivy League schools are saying about this stuff. So therefore they must be right. And now we can make fun of uh, the creation theory when you realize that it, you know, all of the stuff that these Royal Society people promote that I've seen so far is constantly an attack on Christianity and an attack on Logos, for that matter. Right, right, right. I, you, you'll get no argument from me. <laughs> now, uh, let's see. You want to talk about the creation of a new Judaism after Babylon? Uh, yeah, the, the whole idea was that Babylon was not, it, while it was a dualist society, it really didn't traipse into the idea of what we would full, consider full-fledged Gnosticism. 
it, it was just a way of, I, I kind of think of it as a peasant religion. You, if you go into the backwoods of even modern America, you'll find a lot of church where evil is very real and good is very real and they're pitted against each other. It's just, at that time, Zoroastrianism was a very simplistic form of religion. It isn't until around somewhere in the first century, and I assume it's pharisaical, that they start assuming that reality isn't real. And once that component gets wedded to this dualism, that's when you start seeing the, the, the full-blown Gnosticism. As far as I can tell, uh, it was the Pharisees that started importing these ingredients of that. You have uh, Hillel, uh, who's highly regarded in Judaism today, but there is a lot of things that Christians, should, I think, should be a little bit leery of. Um, nobody's really tried his come up with an adequate solution. Hillel, for instance, comes up with the golden rule, which is a little bit different variation than the Christian golden rule. And there's never been a, a, an explanation of how one evolved out of the other or whether one predated the other or not. But by the time you end of that, what happens is you have the Pharisees using what they have kind of discovered as a kind of a pre-Hegelian dialectic is pushing out the other Greek philosophical schools and basically retaking over the temple and rewriting it. And if you understand that the, the early Judaism was always a, a sacrificial religion, what you find once the Pharisees get a hold of it and start moving into the second century, once the temple is destroyed, that's where Judaism takes on this non-sacrificial aspect, leaving Christianity to reinvent a kind of a new way that they can move the sacrificial aspect forward, which becomes communion in the Eucharist and things like that. But it's, it's all kind of based around this pharisaical idea that they've taken from the, the Persian mysticism that there can be two truths. And at, at that time, it was called the twofold truth. Which that's how we refer to it today. But the twofold truth isn't full-blown Gnosticism yet. It's by the time you end up with this doctrine that reality doesn't exist, it's wedded to the idea that there's twofold truth. Now you get something, something diabolical. Called Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. Right, right. Well, Carl Jung and everybody else, they've right. all got there. And, of course, Carl Jung lived next door to uh, DCI, Alan Dulles, former head of the CIA. So, yeah. And then you and have I this... mean, that become, those become popular textbooks yeah. in the 60s. And then uh, as uh, Beating Tracks Out of Babylon says, Gnosticism is Persian, and it's all this Persian mysticism. Now, you write in your book, this is a very critical point in the discussion. In a sense, the Pharisees are immigrants to Palestine. They had no part in Ezra's reclaiming of Scripture. They took no part in the rebuilding of the temple. The destruction of the temple necessitated the shift in tradition. So, following the Pharisees' lead, many Jews embraced an, a, air quotes, elder tradition that required no sacrificial components. It was components of this dualism that later emerged as Gnosticism. It is only in this light that we can see that Isaac and Yedin, uh, what Isaac and Yedin are up to. They are trying to link Christianity back to the very same Persian mysticism of the Pharisees through the Essene hypothesis. They are trying to legitimize the traditions of the elders, the very thing Jesus repudiated as false hypocritical doctrine, hence the need to redate the Masoretic tradition. Right. And that's what happened. Is that you, What you find is that 
when the, the Jews come out of the Babylonian exile, not all of them return to Judaism. The, those that returned three, 400 years later were of this Persian descent. They, they, they hadn't experienced the Old Testament, basically. The Old Testament was rewritten by Ezra on this journey back to Israel. Uh, so when they come back, they're bringing this uh, doctrine, this mystical doctrine that, and who knows what exactly it was because it was all an oral doctrine at the time, uh, that gets reincorporated into Judaism at that time. And now you've that's where you find the problems all starting. In order, in fact, I would say that's the one of the main the main goals of the Dead Sea Scrolls is to take something that by all normal dating would be in about 400 AD is to make it appear that it was actually about 100 BC or so then saying that Christianity had practiced the wrong tradition and now we need to plug back into the real thing. Would you like to talk about how Rome did not invent Christianity as claimed by Joe Atwill and others? Sure. Um, let me let me I'm, I'm let me go over their theory I and mean, you can agree with me I, or not if what the typical and this is actually fairly lively in a lot of fundamentalist churches too is that Constantine you have a basically kind of a loose Christianity at the time and all of a sudden you have Constantine showing up about 325 with the Nicene Creed and he formulates Christianity uh, they're ignoring a lot of evidence. You've got Eusebius, you've got a lot of different things going on at the time. Uh, to my thought, and there's some dispute as to whether this is accurate or not, but I think whether it actually existed or not is fabricated. I, I believe it, it represents something real that happened. What you find is that there's legends of Pilate going to the Senate of Rome, and the Senate of Rome based basically does not want to legitimize all of Christianity because they're suspicious of it. But what happens is they do legitimize one branch of it. And that becomes, that falls under the Roman protectorate as being a legitimate religion in favor of Pilate appealing to the Senate. So what happens, I, I don't believe all of Christianity at that point trusts that. The Roman Empire did not go as far as Edessa. So a lot of the relics and things you'll find of Christianity, as I think we discussed this last week, Edessa claims about 21, 22 authentic relics of Christianity, which is placed beyond the Roman Empire in Edessa. Uh, I think you could probably pretty much reliably trace that back to the beginnings of Orthodox Eastern Christianity. The West is the sanctioned Christianity by the Roman Empire. That becomes eventually the, the Roman Catholic Church whatever these people are appealing to. I was surprised a while ago, uh, I was researching the beginnings of Baptist doctrine. A lot of their doctrine, uh, they're making appeals to what would normally be Gnostic people. I don't know if they didn't realize it or whatever. It, it, you end up, a lot of what happens is you, is you gotta go back to the Nicene Creed and really objectively look at it and what the, the the rumors at the time and what's being taught in most seminaries is that Christianity would have lived and died except for an iota. And that if you look in the Nicene Creed, there's a, there's a phrase of one substance. And that what substance in my mind is clearly an Aristotelian term. The, 
what happens is you have Arius and oddly enough, St. Nicholas, I believe it was, having an argument over that. And St. Nicholas actually pounds Arius in the nose and knocks him over. And eventually Arius, the legend is, threw his guts up and everything because he found out he was wrong about. But the, it, the difference between the idea of substance and everything being of the same being or similar being is really just the difference between one, one period and an eye. What you find there though is a complete, very, I think a very well-developed argument at that time between Neoplatonism and orthodoxy and what I would say is the beginnings of, of logos. You, from that you end up into, maybe you, you read, your listeners wouldn't be aware of this, but there, there was a book that predates Aquinas and everything going back to St. John Damascene, which has a very reliable, he insists it's, 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 it's the Philosophia Perennis of the early church. That, and that dates to around the five, 600. Before that you have Boethius and stuff. So you, you actually have, in my mind, when you put all the evidence together from the Bacchae, then they're, they're using that. You have St. John Damascene, who basically is, is the last Christian writer to write anything before Islam takes over. And he specifically says, I'm, I'm writing my books to, to, for all time so that the Christian religion can live and represent it properly before Islam takes over. Uh, and so he writes the Fount of Wisdom, basically saying all the stuff we're saying right now and documenting it. So it's a well-developed religion. How did they try to make logos a Persian or or make logos Persian or Gnostic in origin? That I believe happens more once you start getting to Madame Blavatsky. What happens is that one of the big arguments when you get to the beginning of the Renaissance is whether uh, Plato is the foundation of real thought or not. But by this time, you'd have arguments even to this day whether what Plato really stood for. What you find is that there's a real Plato who is a philosopher, but they start inventing this occult Plato. You can find this in the writings of St. Augustine, or Augustine, some people say. Uh, Augustine literally says in one point in his books that the next closest thing to Christianity is Platonism. But what they all seem to ignore is Augustine also condemns Hermeticism. And he calls Hermeticism the devil's confederate. So by the time you end up in the Renaissance, they're bringing both together and calling it Platonism. And then most seminaries to this day do not make that distinction, that there's a difference between Plato as the inspiration for Aristotle and what eventually by the time of the early church was called Middle Platonism and the, the Platonism of the Renaissance and thereafter, which is what I would even call neo-neoplatonism, which is really the occult. And that's where you get Giordano Bruno, uh, Agricola, all these different people who are pushing the occult into the modern era. Then that's what basically Madame Blavatsky discovers, Aleister Crowley. So in, in there, and even to this day, you have the Da Vinci Code and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and Bajant and Lay. I mean, they're all plugging into this occult legend. And that, that's where you get the distinction from is, I would say the dividing line in, in all this is whether you're appealing to the real Plato or the one that was fabricated after the fact. Beating tracks out of Babylon says uh, he thinks that Ezra, or he recalls Ezra found a copy of the Torah and republished it, not rewrote it or wrote well, it. Yeah, what, it, 
if you actually read the Sanhedrin doctrines, they will say that somewhere around that path, what was ancient Jewish script either was a lost or evolved or something so that what, what I mean by writing it, he, it's not like he invented it. He, he somehow had the documents and there's a lot of similarities between Hebrew and uh, Aramaic and things like that. Aramaic is just the lingua franca of Persia. So at some point he's rewriting these documents. Uh, and I have no doubt that he, he had the original somehow and it was trying to, you know, like we do, I, I do the same thing. I take old things and I write them in a way that I think can be presented to, to people of the current age. You know, would be my take on it. Well, we've got enough here for at least one more show. Do you want to come back in a couple few weeks? Sure. Uh, this is a Christmas season for me, so I might be a little bit busy. So, What about uh, in uh, three weeks? Would that work for you? Sure. Right. I, I'd have to look at my calendar. I, I, ha I have Christmas and all that kind of. It'd have to be after Christmas. I, I oh, it would be after Christmas. I think that would be the three weeks out would be the week before Christmas. That would probably be my worst week. Your worst week. All right. Well, let's yeah. shoot for uh, the end of the year then. Maybe you'll be the last uh, uh, show we'll do of the year. We'll see about that. And then uh, next week, I have John Kleizek coming on to discuss uh, the origins of education. And we're also going to be discussing the trivium. And then the week after that, I have Sonia coming on, an Islamic apostate turned Christian, and she's going to be discussing her own research and journey out of Islam and into Christianity and how uh, she's discovered all of uh, the same frauds uh, and cover-up that uh, Lloyd and Todd and I exposed in our 19 shows. So that'll be a good show. I'm not sure what we'll have uh, three weeks out. But there's the lineup. Thanks, Steve Mercer, for the support. Ladies and gentlemen, please support the show. We can't do it without you. We do survive on listener viewer support, logosmedia.com. Please hit the donate button there. You can also subscribe through Patreon, which is uh, in the uh, show description down below. And um, Steve. One, one, one last thing. Sure. I just remembered the name of the person you should look up is Evelyn Underhill. She's semi-regarded as a feminist saint in the modern world, but if you look it up, she's isn't that a isn't that a, a contradiction of him? Right, but she's she blatantly in her writings appeals to hermeticism as the, the saving doctrine. She's a former member of the Golden Dawn. She knew Madame Blavatsky. It was all, you know. Yeah, and uh, hold up your book, and you know what? Why don't you send me the link for your uh, Lulu account so people can buy the hard copy of that. The Death of Tradition, and get that. Steve, you want to give out your uh, email address again so people can contact you? CosmoJones1 at Gmail. CosmoJones1 at Gmail. And so uh, give me that link for your uh, book on Lulu as soon as you can, and we'll post that up as well. If if you know it off the top of your head, maybe you can. Uh, I don't. I don't even know it off the top of my head. I can get it to you. All right, so and we'll post that up in the uh, show notes so that people can find that and get a copy of that. And uh, have you back in a few weeks, three or four weeks. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. Good to have you back. Great, thank you. Great material. Thanks, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for your support and viewership. Please hit the like and subscribe. And uh, I'll get this uploaded to the primary channel right away. And uh, 
We will uh, see you next week. Take care and good night.